following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, brothers and sisters, you can find the radio seats again or wherever you're stationing yourself with your kids. It'll be in the book of Jeremiah. So please open to Jeremiah chapter 2. And I want to just reiterate from last week, these little green schedules are a resource and a tool for you. If you don't already have one, grab one on your way out, stick that in your Bible. Read along with us as we study through Jeremiah, Genesis, and the, uh, and the epistles of John together. Um, this is a great schedule so that we can be praying and reading together as a church and get that much more out of our time together on Sundays. Well, I'm going to begin with prayer to the Lord, asking for His grace this morning in our study and His grace and encouragement to those who are not with us, who are sick or traveling. So would you pray with me? Lord, we give thanks to you for this morning, for your grace and peace, which is ours in Christ. We thank you, God, for the the Sundays in which we gather and the rehearsing of the gospel, the call to worship, the prayer, the confession of sin, the assurance of our pardon, our, our need of, of one another in spurring up each other to love and good deeds, the reminder of the gospel, the, the need of instruction from your word, of our gathering so that we could hear, receive, and walk together in faith, the sharing of our burdens together. So, we, Lord, we, we ask that this, this time here, the next 30, 40 minutes, would be fruitful in the study of your word, that, that I would speak only as you would have me instruct your people, and that our eyes and ears and minds and hearts would be open to the receiving of your word, and that for the little ears here this morning, God, would you begin to work in their heart, God, sow the seed of your word there among fertile soil, so that at the right time, God, as you save them, that fruit would come bearing in a great harvest. And we as a church and as parents would see and reap the work we sow now. We do this, of course, by your grace. We also pray for those who are not here. Lord, specifically we pray for those who are sick or at home because they could not get here. We think of, of my family. We think of James and Trevor. We think of Kendrick. We think of others. God, would you give encouragement to them, help them know and understand that you are, you are near to them, they are loved by you, that we love them, and that though they are absent in body, Lord, they are with us here in spirit as they either watch or pray or simply rest and are known that they are loved. Lord, we give this time to you, as always, we pray. Now in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Jeremiah chapter 2. Last week we began a new series in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. Contrary to what the 70s song says, he was not a bullfrog. He was a prophet. And a prophet is somebody who speaks for God. Someone who is chosen by God to be his mouthpiece to a particular people. So Jeremiah 
was chosen by God, we learned last week in chapter 1, set apart even from his mother's womb to be a mouthpiece or a prophet to the nations. That is, not just to Israel and to Judah specifically, but to all nations who would come against Judah in time. And the message of Jeremiah is that despite Israel's sin, and despite their wandering from the Lord, and despite their impending judgment and discipline that God would deliver, God will not and has not abandoned them. So Jeremiah, as much as it is a book of warning and a book of weeping, of sorrow and lamenting, it is a book of God's faithfulness to restore and to heal that which is broken. My prayer is over the series of the next year or so, as we study Jeremiah, you begin to see God's heart for sinners. That though he at times will chide and discipline and even judge, he will not abandon. That's Jeremiah's message, the call for repentance from God's people, to return to the Lord. That despite their wanderings, God will embrace them and accept them as they turn to him. Jeremiah, though not completely unique among the prophets, does stand alone in how he reveals God's heart to us. In Jeremiah, remember, we will see God's heart for sinners, God's heart for the broken, God's heart for the covenant breakers, God's heart for the rebellious. This is Jeremiah's message to God's people. Ultimately, he calls them to return to the Lord. Now, Christians today often use a phrase about feeling close to God. I want to be near to God and walk with God. And that's a phrase by which we mean how, how we feel at any given moment about how we're doing in the Christian life. Sometimes we mean an actual sort of feeling that dictates how we will behave that day. If we feel near to the Lord, we will sin less and be more obedient. If we feel distant from the Lord, we feel maybe cut off from the Lord, we are more prone to temptation or struggle or sin. But this idea of the Lord's nearness, friends, just be aware, is completely one-sided. What the Bible actually teaches is that the Lord is no nearer nor further than he ever was to his people in covenant. Now, from our perspective, it may feel that the Lord is far off when we pray and we don't receive an answer in time or in season. Or when we read our Bible and we ask for help and we're not quite sure what the answer will be or when it will come. When we ask the Lord to deliver us from a certain temptation or trial, and in his timing, he hasn't quite lived up to our own expectations. But the reality is that God is not far off, but remains near despite how we describe our feelings in that moment. So the language we use about feeling close to God is really a reflection of our seeking and responding to God's word more than it is God's actual nearness to his people. Now, this isn't to say that through God's discipline and judgment, he does not at times, as the Psalms would say, remove his presence in one sense or another. But that God's covenantal promises always stand. And God can always be found if he is in faith genuinely sought. 
This is what's going on in the heart of Israel. They call upon the name of the Lord. They worship in the temples. They do the work of the law. They read it, know it. They have priests and scribes and prophets and leaders. They call themselves God's people. And yet, because of their disingenuineness, God has chosen to warn them about impending judgment of catastrophe. Feeling close to God means that we respond to God's word in faith and seek Him in truth rather than His drawing near to us or removing away from us. Well, all of us, of course, want to draw near to the Lord. All of us want to feel close to God. All of us want to walk in God's presence and feel and bask in the light of His beauty and grace and truth. What Jeremiah will teach us this morning is that in order to feel close to God, in order to draw near to Him, it is not necessarily in God's drawing near to us, since He has never pulled Himself away, but in our seeking and finding God by faith. This is what Jeremiah calls Judah and the whole household of Israel too. Let's begin to look at the text. We can break Jeremiah chapter 2 into three sections. First, God through the prophet Jeremiah indicts Israel. It says in verse 1, The Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and in lands not shown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. But hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. 
Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is an indictment by the Lord through the mouth of his prophet, Jeremiah. God is laying out a charge against his people. An indictment is a formal legal proceeding where God says, you have done this wrong. One must pay for such sins. But before we look closely, more closely at these first 13 verses, notice the analogy that's, that's in the forefront. It is that God is a husband to his people. When it says there in verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, and how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not so. God sees himself or demonstrates his covenant partnership with Israel as we would understand a marriage. In fact, Paul tells us that marriages are a way for us to understand and grasp just how God relates to his people in covenant. But God says that he is to be our husband and we are to be his bride. That's the metaphor he uses to describe the relationship. And he says to remember. He remembers the, the love of the youth that Israel had for him as a bride. Those who have been married for some time may also look back at the early days of their dating in the first several years of the marriage and with gladness remember how special those moments were. And though life does set in and normalcy kicks in, sometimes we look back and remember those affections, the love of our youth, which spurs us on to greater and deeper love in our relationship. Well, God draws up this metaphor and this analogy and says that I remember the devotion of your youth. I remember your love to me as a bride, your affections for your husband, how you followed me or went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Here, he's drawing up imagery about the exodus how he called them out of Egypt, how he provided for them, protected and preserved them in the midst of this wilderness, and how he brought them into this land of Canaan, this promised land where they would be prosperous, and be established as a great nation. Well, God lays out this charge that despite their love, despite their youthful affection, they have turned from him. Despite his promises, Despite the covenant, they have turned. In fact, all of chapter 2 demonstrate God's covenant faithfulness and our covenant forgetfulness. And so if we don't want to follow in the footsteps of Judah here, the warning for us today is that we must not forget God's covenant faithfulness and our covenant partnership. In other words, we are exhorted here to recall with Jeremiah the former affections 
to the Lord. Now, this marriage analogy is not like our own Western idea of marriage, or our own conceptions of marriage. In this idea of marriage, a bride is much more dependent to her husband, more singularly under the authority and headship of her husband than we in the West typically think. In the West, we view marriage and romantic partnerships primarily as egalitarian, that the husband and wife are equal to one another. And though this is true on one level, in dignity, worth, and value as image bearers of God, what the Bible teaches us and the pattern of God's relationship with Israel teaches us that marriages are not an equal partnership, but that husbands are called to be the head of the home, that there is a headship within marriage, and this was according to God's design and is demonstrated in God's headship over the church. And so we should not think of the egalitarian marriage the West promotes today, but where God himself is the head of the church, where he, as our husband, forms our authority, our protection, and our provider. And so when Jeremiah says that God remembers this, God, in a sense, laments that Israel has tried to be either equal with God, standing in their own right, independent of Him, or has rejected Him as their husband altogether. So we are exhorted to recall the former affections which with, with, with which we came to know and love God. The affections are at the center of God's covenant with His people. To be a Christian means not simply to acknowledge and confess Christ as Lord, but more than that, to love Christ as Lord. Affections mean that we love God above all, even our own health and flesh, if God calls us to lay it down. It means that we obey Him, submit ourselves to His authority and headship. It means we depend upon Him for all things. It means we do not see ourselves as equals with God, but subject to Him. We are both His servants and His bride. And so we must recall the former affections in which we entered into covenant with God if we are to continually feel near to God, that we may remind ourselves of that partnership and covenant with Him, where He is always near to us. How do we do this? How will we avoid the forgetfulness of covenant faithfulness and seek to recall the former affections of our covenant beginnings. Well, one of the ways we can do this together is simply by telling good stories, by recalling the faithfulness of God in our lives with one another. Rehearsing the goodness and the grace of God is one of the most powerful ways that you and I can recall our former affections and be spurred up and rejuvenated in our love for God. This isn't a simply pie-in-the-sky affection, a count-your-blessings kind of reminding, but a contemplation on God's goodness in your life. Remember, from which God has saved you, the life you live, and the life you now are called. Remember what you were like before you knew Christ. Paul is a perfect example of this in the New Testament. He was a persecutor of the church, 
a Pharisee according to the flesh. He had everything to boast in, and yet everything before he knew Christ he counts as rubbish. Why? Because as he remembers and recalls how God saved him, his affections are stirred for him and him alone. So we should tell stories of God's goodness to one another. We should see songs that, that teach us and remind us that God is faithful always. We should encourage one another as God shows himself as provider or protector, as gracious Lord, as he steps in to care for us when we are wounded or disconsolate. One way that we will recall the former affections is simply by sharing God's goodness in our lives. So the first exhortation to recall from God's indictment here is to do not forget God's faithfulness and to recall your former affections. The second lesson we can learn from an indictment here in the first 13 verses is that we are not to neglect God's word. Or put positively, we are to continually seek after the Lord. He says there, you followed me in the wilderness. You sought after me in the wilderness. In the rest of the verses, he says, what went wrong? What happened to the love? What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became themselves worthless? See, even in Israel, even at this time, God was never officially rejected outright. They never changed religions. They never said, we don't worship God anymore. They simply began to ignore him and add on to their worship. So while they're wandering, Israel has never ceased at this time to actually be religious. They continue to be religious. Notice what it says in verse 8. That the priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. They didn't cease their religious offering. They didn't disregard religion, or if you'd like, they didn't stop going to church. They continued to call out to the Lord. But those calling and those prayers and their worship rang hollow because they continually neglected God's word. His instruction is neglected. The worship is profaned. And yet everyone thinks they're doing just fine. Look ahead in verse 34 to 35. He says that on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor, you do not find them breaking in. And yet in spite of these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned from me. Behold, I will bring to you judgment for saying, I have not sinned. Friends, how dangerous it is for us to assume because we go to church, because we have Christian lingo, because we have good theology, because we confess a, a profession of faith that aligns with Orthodox Christianity, because we have Christian friends or Christian parents, that we are safe from God's wrath and judgment. We may never directly, outright reject God, but our actions may in fact betray a rebellious heart. 
we may be completely oblivious to the fact that you and I have rejected God in our activities and in our worship. We may not believe that we have sinned, but according to God's word, we would have sinned. But it's easy to pretend we haven't if we ignore the standard by which we determine if we have or not. One sure way then to continually seek after the Lord is to not neglect His Word. Our affections must be stirred. And how are they to be stirred? Through His Word. Through the teaching, the preaching, the singing, the exhorting, the praying of His Word. That is what the work of the Word does as the Spirit brings to life the powerful, active work of the Word. Our affections are stirred. And so we must not fail to read, to study, to sit under, and to be stirred by God's Word. Lastly, this exhortation from this indictment is that we must not abandon God. Or again, put positively, we must seek to be satisfied with Christ and Him alone. See, if we forget God's covenant faithfulness and in our turn become covenantally forgetfulness, forgetful, and we neglect His Word, which is our source of affection-stirring love, then our hearts will become dull or hard of hearing. And dull hearts will want dumb things. They will begin to seek after things that appeal to the flesh. They will be satisfied with things that, like the sugar in a donut, feels good for a moment, but provides no nutrition. Thank you, Chris, for your donuts. Well, one of the reasons Israel was able to stray into unfaithfulness is because she failed to identify the warning signs in the Word, or they, stopped to consider, they never stopped to consider whether or not Yahweh would be pleased with their actions. Their hearts became dulled or hardened, if you'd like, to God's Word in ways. And they became satisfied with the cheap offerings of false gods, of idols. And this is what he says there in verses 9 through 13. He says, no, no other nation has changed their God, and yet his people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. He says that my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fount of living waters. And secondly, they've hewed out cisterns. That's like a, a well that they would dig into the ground to collect rainwater when in the dry season their source of water would dry up. They have dug for themselves cisterns, broken, fragile, fragile cisterns that can hold no water. This is a cheap, ineffectual grace. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Jesus compares what it means to receive the fountain of living water, to drink from the fountain of living water, as opposed to the shallow waters drawn from broken cisterns. John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. 
Jesus says to this woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Notice what Jesus says, that there is a water which can never satisfy, not fully, not forever, but there is also a water which comes from him, which, if we drink, will satisfy our thirst forever, which will in us be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is what Jeremiah means when God through him says that they have forsaken the fountain of living waters. They have exchanged eternal living for shallow, broken cisterns. Well, friends, what are your empty cisterns? What are the wells that you have dug and you are drinking from in which you have exchanged drinking from the fountain of living water to be satisfied with something else. The woman at the well was drinking from a broken cistern of love as she had five husbands. Jesus, in telling her about the living water which she would drink, was that the greatest source of love was to be drawn from him. We might dig similar wells, we might have similar cisterns in our life that we draw from. Comfort, power, the affection and adoration or affirmation of others. Examine your own heart, friends, and see whether you are drawing from the well of living waters which spring up into eternal life, or if you are drinking, lapping with your hand from those empty, broken cisterns that cannot satisfy. So God's indictment, the charges he lays out against Israel reminds us that we must not forget God's covenant faithfulness. We must not neglect God's word and we must not abandon God's promises. We should instead recall our formal affections, continually seek the Lord in his word and fight to be satisfied with Christ and him alone. Well, in the next section in verses 14 28, Israel begins to decline because of their rebellion and rejection of God, because of their covenant forgetfulness, they fall into a declension or a degradation of sorts, into shame, into trouble. Just briefly look over the images of Israel's foolishness that Jeremiah uses. In verse 14, they're called a slave. They become servants of these other nations around them. They're prey of these nations. They, their, their, their dwelling places have been destroyed in verse 15. They're called a harlot in verse 20, an illegitimate fruit in verse 21. They are stained by their sin in verse 22. They are like a donkey in heat, verse 24. He compares them to a thief in verse 26. This picture is to show just how far God's people would fall if they continually reject and ignore God's warnings if they continually persist in their covenant forgetfulness. 
These images are meant to hold a mirror to ourselves. That we too become servants and slaves of others around us. That we can become the prey of those who would seek to feast on our vulnerabilities. Our homes and our churches can be destroyed as we give way to these trials and temptations. We can prostitute ourselves out, seeking the affections and the affirmations of others, feeling better about ourselves if we receive their praise. We are stained by our sin and our failure to repent or recognize. We draw things to ourselves so that we can feel better. Like a thief, we are caught in our sin and our shame. In fact, this is the height of Israel's shame, that they have no fear of the Lord. Return again to verse 19. It says, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will approve you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. They do not fear the Lord. And in verse 27, they have a one-sided faith. It says that those who worship other idols have turned their back to me and not their faith, but in their time of trouble, they say, that is to God, arise and save us. What does God say? Where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. So they're hypocritical. They have only a one-sided faith. They come to God only when it suits them or when they need something. Ultimately, they are rejecting the only source of their salvation. Notice, friends, that the choice is of one and necessarily means that it's a rejection of the other. To choose God is to reject these idols, or to choose these idols is to reject God. There is no such thing as a non-choice here. You choose God or idolatry. In fact, it says that God's people once went after him. That's the recalling of their youth. But now they go after idols. They're the same phrase in verse 5 and in verse 25. It says that you, I have loved foreigners and I will go after them. So the devotion Israel once had to the Lord, they now give to idols. But this is not unique to Israel. It's the case for all creation. In fact, in verse 11, we see that even nations chase after other idols and have fallen into such degradation. And Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 1. And he says that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their mind and foolish in their hearts, which were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see the echo there in verse 11 that my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. What does Paul say? Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator 
who is blessed forever. Amen. So what Paul warns us of, what Jeremiah warns us of, what God is warning us of, is that we can fall into a sort of declension when our hearts become so hardened by the ignoring of his word and the neglecting of his warnings, the abandoning of our affections with Christ, we fall into these images, idolatry, and so on. And so if these persist, then comes judgment. And this is the third section of the chapter here, verses 29 through 37. Judgment then follows. Notice this judgment, first of all, comes by revelation. That is the word of God. He says again in verse 31, You, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. The judgment comes. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say we are free and will come to you no more? He judges them according to his word. The word of God is the standard by which we will be measured for our faithfulness to him. We must, as he exhorted here today, hear and heed the word of the Lord. And ignorance to this will not be an excuse, Christians. Verse 35, you say I am an innocent. Surely his anger would be turned from me. But behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. Just because you are unaware of your sin does not mean your sins are excused. Judgment will come by his word. It is meant to give us wisdom so that we will be not ignorant of those sins. For as our idols go, so will we. Again in verse 5, notice what it says there. It says, What did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became themselves worthless? Or in verse 37, there at the end, From it too you will come away with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. If you want to cling to these idols, God says, be prepared to be thrown into judgment along with them. So judgment is the outcome of following worthless idols. As we examine our hearts and see what wells of broken cisterns we draw from, let us be clear that if we continue to drink from such sources, we will share in the outcome. Those wells are poisoned, and we will find ourselves under God's wrath in time. Well, the question we end with then, of course, is where is hope? This is not a, an optimistic picture Jeremiah paints here. Well, though there is no explicit promise of restoration or forgiveness in this chapter, in the next chapter there will be a call for repentance. Yet for those who have fallen under the conviction of God's indictments here and have become aware of the folly and the foolishness of their own ways, the answer to them would be obvious. That hope is to be found by the answer Israel was supposed to be asking in the first place. Where is the Lord? This was the question they failed to ask. Where is the Lord, verse 6, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, who led us to a land of deserts and pits and drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. You can hear ringing in the prophet's word, the psalm, 23, the Lord is my shepherd, 
I shall not want, and he leads me by still waters and green pastures. Through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For he is with me. So when you ask the question, where is the Lord? You answer the question, where is hope to be found? He is with me. That's the cry of those who have been saved and found to be covenanted to God. It is found in the same answer that Israel was to be asking. Where is the Lord? There is our hope. For he who was abandoned will not abandon his covenant. He who is faithful will not abandon his covenant simply because we are forgetful. God is faithful in every season and in every way. As we sang this morning, all that we need, he has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. But more than this, God in his faithfulness would send Jesus his son. And in Jesus, he would be ultimately abandoned. He would be abandoned not simply by his friends, but on the cross, God would pour out his wrath on him. Never at once ceasing to be God, Jesus would receive and experience the full weight of God's wrath and indignation. The indictment against sin, the penalty of that would be poured out on Jesus. He would be abandoned to suffer for our sins, and yet Christ has not abandoned us. Matthew chapter 28 reminds us of this great and precious promise. He tells his disciples to go into all nations, to baptize them, to teach them all that he has commanded, the promise of which we draw our strength from, that well of eternal life on which we are to dwell and drink from, is that, lo, I will be with you always until the end of the age. The precious promise is that God does not abandon us, though we have abandoned him. In fact, he draws us near to himself through our searching. As we seek, he is to be found. In his word, his spirit guides us to himself. We come to know and trust in those promises and those graces and those mercies. And we fill ourselves with that eternal fountain of living water. And we think and we meditate and we rejoice and we celebrate as we remember that good and precious promise that he is with us always. So what does it mean to draw near to the Lord, to feel close to God? It means ultimately that God has drawn us to himself through his word. That we have not forgotten the covenant he makes with us through Christ, in whose blood the new covenant is established. It means that we trust in his promises and do not neglect those promises or seek after other idols. It means that we focus on his word and his ways so that our hearts would not grow dull or hardened so that Christ would continually be before us as we tell each other stories of God's goodness, as we spur one another on to love and good works, as we seek with one another to be satisfied in Christ, we avoid the indictments here laid out for Israel and instead rest in the promises that we as God's covenant people are freed and we receive all the precious promises 
we are restored again to the joy of our salvation. The love we have as a bride is sustained by God's love for us as our husband. Let us continually return to him in his grace that we may walk with the Lord in our days. Father, we thank you for your word, your grace, your mercy. We ask, God, that you would teach us where and how we have dug cisterns, hewn cisterns that are leaking and are broken. We admit, God, that we, from time to time, often look elsewhere for our source of living water. Lord, but those sources cannot provide for us what you alone can. And so we ask, God, that you would teach us in this moment how we can best live in light of the glory that's displayed on the cross. Christ, who has not abandoned us, but gave himself for us, that we may live. We love you, Lord, for you are faithful in all things. May we continue to raise monuments, Ebenezer's to the Lord, that remind us of your faithfulness and goodness, that we will be bound like a fetter, like a chain to your word so that we could be seen as those who are covenantally bound to you. We give thanks to you as always, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.